to talk to you just briefly about why we should have a symposium at this particular time. And I want to go through some statistics and some uh, facts about the current state of the culture and the current state of the church that should be troubling. But the point is not to induce despair, but to prompt us to act and to make changes for the good. Brother Dan will follow me up. I'm, I'm probably, hopefully, going to limit my remarks. Now, here I'm committing myself to around 15 to 20 minutes. We're going to see how round that is. <laughs> I don't suppose it's too much to assume that we're all here motivated by a common concern, both for our culture and for the church in, ge in a general sense. While I'll say straight up that we're going to speak candidly with you, we also want to apologize in advance for any misunderstandings our words may cause. We feel obliged of the Lord to share the hope that lies within us, to speak freely concerning the truths that have changed our lives. But we do not want to be competitive. We don't feel worthy or capable in ourselves to even carry these truths to you. And so it is sincerely with fear and trembling that we stand before you. And if we say anything that suggests that God would call us to greater light or greater understanding, please don't misunderstand that as condescension toward you or anyone else. We look up to all of you and we can see in so many a righteousness or a fruit or a character or an understanding or a faithfulness that we aspire to. So if we're going to hold the Lord and his word as lofty, please don't misunderstand that as holding ourselves as lofty. We want to be your humble servants and his messengers. Amen. I don't think any of us can deny the telltale signs of mortal illness plaguing our culture. Our media and education system has methodically stacked the dry tender of bitterness, blaming, and fear in the minds of the masses. The smallest sparks of injustice or tragedy ignite rage like a wildfire and fear like driving winds. American cities have burned in those flames. Those flames have wreaked over $2 billion worth of property damage, stealing livelihoods and lives alike. Each side accuses the other of heinous crimes and truth is trampled in the streets. America's largest companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, Twitter, and Facebook, boast a combined wealth exceeding the GDP of almost every world nation. They control the spread of information and to a large extent determine the outcome of national elections and even the spread of truth. They've throttled and abridged information, sparking outcries of censorship and partiality. You live in a time when unknown criminals ambush civil servants and summarily execute them for belonging to a group they deem unjust. 
In recent months, riots raged in large cities across America. Monuments were torn down, churches desecrated, stores looted, buildings burned, federal agents were blinded, harassed, hospitalized, and even killed. Police were expelled and anarchy declared in a large portion of one of America's biggest cities. And all the while, the deadliest pandemic in a hundred years has been used, confused, and abused by politicians aiming to wield it as a club against opponents or else to crown themselves with salvific success. Dialogue degenerates to propaganda, demonizing your opponent, and civility is dismissed as a tactic of the weak. Many contemplate our, cultures, our culture's current condition like a loved one would hearing a cancer diagnosis. Denial. Denial is a mechanism most appealing to fearful instincts. It attempts to configure troubling trends as freak anomalies. It explains away evidence and hides from the sight of stark and startling symptoms. Initially, denial is more palatable to a troubled soul. It feels more kind, gentle, or patient. But denial is not kindness. It is complicity with disease. It makes us waste valuable time that could be spent on radical efforts to reverse the otherwise inexorable course of demise. Denial is lethal. No critically ill patient will seriously contemplate radical intervention and dangerous cures unless they face and admit to their mortal condition. There are individuals in this room today who have a cancer diagnosis. And they will go to doctors who will explain to them that they must take into their system poison that will take them to death's door itself. The thought of taking in that corrective medicine that is actually killing something in them, that thought is crazy unless they have accepted first the severity of their condition. Unless, in short, they accept the truth that apathy is lethal, that doing nothing is going to result in their demise. I want to give you an allegory, and there's humor in it, and it's okay to laugh, but try to follow me here. A man vacations with his family. When a stranger approaches, this is an allegory, when a stranger approaches wearing a mask, the stranger threatens to knock him out, bind him to a table, and stab him in the side and take his money. The appalled family man flees the madman, glad to have escaped with his life. Let me change it just slightly. A man vacations with his family when he discovers a terminal tumor in his abdomen. He goes to a hospital where a masked stranger straps him to a table, cuts into his side, removing the threat and taking his money. The family man is restored to his cheering loved ones, having barely escaped with his life. Measures that seem painful, cruel, absurd to a man 
healthy, with his life stretching before him, are healing and hope for one facing certain death. In this conference, we will propose actions to take, habits to break, and changes to affect, which, if done, might alter the course of your family, your church and community, if not the health and survival of your culture. America is sick. Accurate diagnosis is not achieved by perfunctory glances at the patient's surface appearance. Life's greatest threats may lurk invisible on the cellular level of the body. Similarly, there is much good to be seen in our country. Countless decent people, acts of kindness and charity, and optimism for a better future overall. Yet let us examine America like a sickly patient. Let us look at our culture on the cellular level. Relationships form the basic cellular blocks of a sustainable culture. Relationships between husband and wife, parents and children, expanding to include neighbors and community. Today's American individual faces challenges on a scale never seen before. 11.5 million people face a crisis of clinical depression threatening their safety every year in this country. For the first time in America's history, the group of people not marrying exceeds those who are. From 1982 to 2009, marriage rates fell steadily and in 2018 reached a 118-year low, the lowest recorded since 1867. Between 1978 and 2008, the share, of marry, the share of adults marrying between the ages of 18 and 34 plummeted from 59% to 29%. A record share of young people are choosing never to marry at all, the CDC reports. Children are more divided from their parents' norms and values than ever, and, are less and there is less understanding between generations, less respect, and ever-rising rates of abuse. Recent studies revealed that the average person in the United States has 338 friends on social media, yet people are lonelier and feel more isolated than ever. Three out of five people feel lonely, lacking true companionship in their current relationships. One out of every four Americans goes so far as to say they have no one that they can confide in. Seventy percent say they hold back on expressing how they truly feel because they simply have no one they can trust. Severe depression among college students rose from 9.4 percent to 21.1 percent from 2013 to 2018 according to the Journal of Adolescent Health. Adolescents between the ages of 12 and 17 had the highest rate of major depressive episodes followed by young adults between 18 and 25. In the span of just 218 days in 2019, 251 mass shootings occurred in the United States on average more than one per day. 
In 2018, 323 mass shootings resulted in over 1,700 victims. 2018 saw more mass gun violence outside of war than occurred in our country in the combined 34 years. The nation pleads with Washington for solution. Some blame gun rights and laws as if this sudden change in violence could be attributed to a 250-year constant. The Second Amendment has remained consistent throughout the life of this nation. We must identify some other variable as the source of this recent alteration. In 2017, suicide was the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 24, and experts expect it will surpass automobile collisions this year as the leading cause of death for this age. According to the CDC, the suicide rate for persons between 10 and 14 tripled from 2007 to 2017. In September 2020, over half of 11 to 17-year-olds reported having thoughts of suicide or self-harm nearly every day of the previous two-week study. From January to September 2020, 77,000 youth reported experiencing frequent suicidal ideation, according to Mental Health America. In 2019, excuse me, in 2018 alone, 1.4 million people attempted to take their own lives. Most of these survived, but on average, 132 people die every day by their own hand. That's 50,000 a year in this country alone. Class warfare has taken a front row seat in American politics with narratives of income inequality touted and reinforced by a media eager to fan envy and bitterness. These do refer to significant issues, but the solutions proposed are more troubling than the problem. Never in our lifetime have mainstream commentators speculated in casual tones about America approaching civil war. A groundbreaking study by the Back to Normal Barometer found that for the first time, 61% of Americans agree that the U.S. could be on the verge of another civil war. 61% of Americans believe the U.S. could be on the verge of another civil war. 52% of consumers have stockpiled food or essentials in anticipation of social unrest. Civil communication between disagreeing factions has all but completely broken down. People on the opposing sides can't even hear what the other side says, let alone entertain legitimate grievances or sincere concern from their opponents. Our public education system, mass media, and tech giants have succeeded in making people incapable of empathy and critical thinking. The left promotes itself as a salvific community, loving, nurturing, healing, educating, providing for the needy masses. It promotes more government intervention to equalize the playing field, more gun control, more federal welfare, more government as the arbiter of fairness. In short, it proposes to be our protector, our provider, our healer, our educator, and more. 
This salvific secular community would set itself up in the place of God, showing itself that it is God, exalting itself above all that is called God or worshipped. The right emphasizes restricting government to allow more individual freedom. And while as noble as these objectives may be, the cultural breakdowns we presently face do not arise out of a lack of personal freedom. Now the rain's competing with me, so I'm going to repeat that. The cultural breakdowns we presently face do not arise out of a lack in personal freedom. They stem from internal breakdowns within the individual and within society. Cultural norms and values which once served as the invisible restraining hand of God have been moved out of the way, therefore temporarily preventing the government from expanding control does not solve the cultural dynamics plaguing the nation. Meanwhile, the church alters no, offers no alternative, no vision of cohesion or wholeness, no salvation, no completeness in Christ, except in the most individualistic, forensic terms which have little impact on the individual's life and no effect on society. Many who want to defend the values that have been essential to religious liberty in American culture insist Christians should become more politically involved to protect those liberties. If our society's sickness is a social problem, a cultural issue, it will not be healed with a political cure. America has been the place in the wilderness where Christianity fled and took refuge as envisioned in Revelations 12. But as Roger Williams, the first American Baptist, recognized, the purpose of American liberty was to bring forth a revived New Testament church. Political involvement in this time of polarization becomes counterproductive to the purpose of God and a diversion from bringing forth the witness of the alternative culture to shine forth as a city on a hill for the world to see. The church and its statistics are not encouraging either. Christian church, the disciples of Christ, in the past 20 years shrank by 63.5%. The Presbyterian Church USA has shrunk by 51%. United Church of Christ by 46.3%. Episcopal Church, 43.1%. United Methodist, 29%. Evangelical Lutheran Church, 20.8%. American Baptist Churches, 15%. 34% of mainline Protestants attend religious services at least once a week. But mainline Protestant denominations have the oldest average age of any religious group in America at almost 52 years of age. Over an eight-year period, a stunning 60% defection has occurred from evangelical circles, according to George Barna. Well less than half of mainline members admit to praying regularly. Only 16% read their Bibles regularly. According to Newsweek's Kenneth Woodward, quote, mainline denominations have been running out of money, members, and meaning. 
Christianity Today reports that the church's declining influence and negative perception among the general public is widespread. In 2001, 24% of Americans said that religion is losing its influence on America's life, on American life. By 2005, that number had grown to 50%. By 2009, to 67%. And the study has not been conducted since. Two out of three teens will leave the church as young adults, according to Lifeway Southern Baptist Convention survey. 66% of young people said they stopped attending church regularly as young adults for a variety of reasons, including changing religions, ethical or political beliefs, and many individuals offered multiple reasons. Only 10% said they dropped out because they stopped believing in God. In fact, 90% said that it was a life change, including moving to college and work responsibilities that prevented them from attending. According to Ben Trueblood, director of student ministry at Lifeway, quote, what our research tells us is that there is nothing about the church experience or faith foundation of those teenagers that could cause them to seek out a connection to a local church once they entered a new phase of life. Chris Brooks, pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church, commented on the study saying, there is a substantial amount of people in this age demographic who for whatever reason decided that the church is no longer integral to building their faith or their faith is no longer integral to them. But Scott, McC Scott McConnell, Lifeway Research Executive, said, there was scarcely any good news in this study. The reality is that Protestant churches continue to see the new generation walk away as young adults. Regardless of any external factors, the Protestant church is slowly shrinking from within, quote unquote. When man sets out to change the world, he eyes the conventions of earthly power and attempts to overturn them. He coalesces a political party, invades the university dogma, preaches his doctrine of humanism over the television screen. Man's conventions for change are programs, mass marketing, political platforms, or violent upheaval. But when God, in his own words, sets out to bless all the families of the earth, he takes a most counterintuitive, revolutionary tact. He decides to make a family by teaching a man to be a father and a husband and teaching a woman to be a mother and a wife. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of children exhibiting behavioral disorders are from fatherless homes. 70% of youth in state-operated institutions are from fatherless homes, nine times the average. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers are from fatherless homes, 10 times the average. 85% of youths in prison are from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 71% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes, 9 times the average. While America is dizzy watching the political football hurl from one party to the next, the real breakdown and collapse of our society is happening in living rooms, not the halls of Congress. 
the solution is answered with the word of God, a supportive Christian community, not another government program. Satan is not ignorant of God's counterintuitive strategies. The God of this world knows that the King of Kings reigns through voluntary, gentle authority of familial love, not through the brute force of political power. Satan is unconcerned with America's special forces units and all the rifles and guns in patriotic Texans' closets. The weapons that terrify him are anointed truth, prayer, responsible fathers, responsible mothers, unity, and church community. If he knows the importance of godly fatherhood to the kingdom, then patriarchy must become the devil's prime target for slander, mockery, marginalization, and thus, by destroying fatherhood, he plans to hurt and curse all the families of the earth. The most revolutionary cure for social breakdown is one individual arranged in a godly family placed in a godly community. Jesus did not say, upon this rock I'll make a shooting star, or upon this rock I'll save an individual. He said, upon this rock I'll build a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The very authority and power of hell is arrayed against the people of God. And unless they rediscover what it means to be fitly framed in the body of Christ and thereby legitimize their claim to belong to the church, they will be prevailed against by the powers that be. The Lord intends to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest he come and smite the earth with a curse. In Revelations 18, we see a complete confusion, which is what the word Babylon means. There is a confusion between relationships. There is a confusion between cultures, a confusion between right and wrong, a confusion between God, his wisdom, and the wisdom that comes from below. And in Revelations 18, it says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, that is, come out of confusion, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is the simple call that we hear to godly people all over the world. Come out of her. Her meaning Babylon. Babylon meaning the confusion between two cultures. And come in to Christ. Christ not as an individual, nor merely a doctrinal prospect or propositional truth, but Christ as a culture, as a place of healing, as a kingdom, as a church fitly framed by the composer. Ezekiel describes the church in an allegory of the temple. And he describes the church that we will see in our day. And this is what the Lord says to Ezekiel about this new vision for a new church in our time. He says, as for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. Now the temple refers to the body of Christ 
in the last days. The house of Israel refers to those who are walking by faith, Christians everywhere. Describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And let them consider and measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make them known, make known to them the design of the house, its structures, its exits, its entrances, all its design, all its statutes, and all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes to do them. We believe in this time, the fulfillment of this scripture goes something like this. God wants to give his people a broad vision of what the body of Christ is supposed to be in these days. And if that vision produces a contrition, in his words, a shame and a repentance, then he will open to us the full design for how to realize that vision in our lives. We don't know what will come of this week. We can't anticipate it. World-altering changes have started in rooms just like this. 2,000 years ago, only 120 met and committed themselves to seeking God for 10 days. And the result was a revolution that turned the world upside down. There are about 400 in this room right now. Let us consecrate ourselves, our minds, our hearts, our attention to see what God would speak to us and to seize this moment for all that he would have it to be. I want to end with the words of Shakespeare. There is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood lead on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea, we are now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. May God help us not to lose this venture. I think you probably saw in your schedule that we titled this segment, How to Start a Community Guaranteed to Fail. I get the distinct feeling after what we just heard that your interest may be waning in this topic. Amen. When I consider that what we titled this and I see how full the room is, I asked myself how I should take that. (laughs) Should I be surprised that there's so much interest in failure? Or should I be relieved that you discerned that the title was somewhat (laughs) tongue-in-cheek? Amen. But sometimes it is good to take a look from the other side. Um, And I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about that now. Um, The good news about what I'm going to say here is that this is going to be the easiest uh, 
part of the whole week. If your goal is failure, anybody can do it. <laughs> it's easy. You don't have to pay attention to a word I say. Okay? All you have to do is nothing. All you have to do is go along with what's going on around us that we just heard about. If, if your goal is a wrong answer, there are infinite possibilities. Amen. So, general advice, if you want to start a Christian community that is going to fail, just pull together some families of people who say they, they want community because it sounds like a good idea, and maybe get a piece of land, do a lot of daydreaming, and, and just do it without much further thought or prayer or consideration as to uh, what's going to happen in the future, just trusting that everything's going to be fine. And if you do that, um, you should be successful in achieving failure. Okay, so ignorance and a casual attitude are your best friends. It'll get you a long ways down that road. So we could leave it there. I could stop there. That should be enough to get you there. But in case there are some here who are still lacking confidence in your ability to fail, <laughs> and you need a few more specifics, let me offer you a few. Okay? I'm going to give you six points um, that, that should help a lot. Point number one, water down the gospel. Okay? First impressions are important. So our, our message to people around us needs to be uh, understood in the most innocuous, truncated, privatized, individualistic, and least intrusive form possible. We need to minimize its footprint in a convert's life. Minimize change. Okay? To loosely quote from the Psalms, his commandments are exceedingly narrow. The word only applies to a very tiny part of your life. We need to assure people of that. It was said of a politician some decades ago, I think this was following a statement that he had made to assure the American people that his personal religion was a private matter that he was not going to impose upon the country. And... Um, that may be a laudable goal for the position he was assuming, but the retort that came back was, well, his religion is so private that he doesn't even impose it on himself. <laughs> so that's a good model to follow if you're uh, bent on failure. So the gospel message, we need to make sure it is as cheap as possible, not costly or offensive to the flesh in any way. It needs to be socially acceptable, fashionable and attractive, financially profitable, devoid of any significant risk. It should be culturally relevant, but you need to understand that the right way. Culturally relevant means that there are no distinctions between the church and the culture of this world. Okay? It certainly should not be radical or revolutionary or seen as something that transforms your entire life and takes you out of one culture and transplants you into a complete and whole kingdom. We should view it as a tiny, superficial, new patch 
to be sewn onto the old time-tested garments that we're already wearing, those comfy hand-me-downs that we got from the world. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, make sure that your faith is little more than a concept. Okay? We need to limit our definition of faith to intellectual, perhaps verbal assent to correct doctrines, not an unfolding experiential relationship with God. Your faith needs to be static and not active. Okay, now if you do insist on a, on a, uh, a list of minimum requirements to qualify, uh, there just needs to be a point, hopefully soon, where stasis and spiritual stagnation are achieved. Okay, so whatever your approach is, however long that list is, make sure that it has a stopping point. Okay, where, where we can check and get to the bottom of it and say, we got done with this religion business, and we can proceed without cares after that. People need to feel confident that they have already attained and are already perfected and have no need to lay hold of anything else or press toward any goal. Don't check me in the Bible on some of these statements, okay? <laughs> Studiously avoid the O word. You know what that is? Obedience. Okay? If you want to fail, obedience is going to defeat you every time. Obedience to God. Okay, another, another important thing is do not, this is not another point, this is a sub-point. Don't exalt subjective emotions above the word of God. Have you ever heard that before? Don't exalt your human feelings over the word of God. Okay, this is, this is important and we need to understand what that means. When we say word in this statement, we're talking about what our rational minds think about whatever we've read in the Bible. And subjective feelings or emotions are actual experiences with God that challenge our sovereignty and control of our own lives. So you can't let that subjective experience of God override your rational understanding of what you think the Bible says. That's an important one. Let me loosely paraphrase again. Trust in your understanding with all your heart and lean not on the Lord and then you can direct your own paths. Included with this is we need to avoid biblical forms of prayer and worship or anything else that might risk an actual encounter with God. If God gets directly involved, chances of failure are drastically diminished. You remember Gamaliel's advice, if it be of man, it's going to fail. Okay, so make sure it's of man and failure is assured. Point number three. Do not prayerfully measure your beliefs against Scripture. Simply assume that whatever the majority of Christian tradition currently accepts as orthodox doctrine must automatically be the infallible truth. In short, don't be like the Bereans who searched the Scriptures to see if the things that were being ministered were so. It would help to give great honor to academic credentials over and above the fruit of character and flourishing relationships. 
By their PhDs, you shall know them. <laughs> skip over. Skip over what Jesus called the bedrock upon which the church must be built and give little attention to what the book of Hebrews calls the foundations, repentance and faith, baptism in water and in spirit, and so on. Just presume that you've already incorporated all of that and proceed to build your house on whatever ground you've inherited by default. Do not anticipate storms that might come to test your foundation. Just assume that all things will continue as they have from the beginning of creation and willfully forget the rest. If someone suggests that you re-examine the foundation, your foundation, a little offended pride should help you ward off the threat. <laughs> and if you have encountered some of these foundations in a genuine way, let's say, for example, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit at some point, there's usually a way to neatly package up those types of things and put them on the shelf and consign them to irrelevance. It's like saying, well, that was just a personal experience for my personal blessing, but we need not view it as an essential component and as a precedent for building the kingdom going forward that's necessary for all of the members of God's church. That's just an example. Point number four. Keep your love free from any forms or patterns or commitments. Keep life unencumbered by a body. Who needs a body to live? <laughs> In other words, keep the content of the spirit divorced from any form of truth or any sense of covenant or commitment. It's all about loving relationships. There are no constraints or patterns. If you do insist upon putting your new wine into some kind of wineskin, make sure that it's an old one. That's the only surefire way to lose both. As an example of what I'm trying to say, Water baptism should not be viewed as anything more than an outward sign of an inward change. It's an optional thing, but it's not necessary. We don't need the truth of God and his patterns found in his word to frame us and define us in order to maintain the content of our relationship. We're just going to love each other and everything's going to be great. Number five, this is connected to that one. Ignore biblically prescribed order in all of your relationships. Children with parents, husbands and wives, leaders and disciples, different ministries and gifts in the church with one another. Honor and respect towards the design of God will stifle the flesh indefinitely. And the flesh is a very important component of failure. Okay? So just place your faith instead in some kind of general democratic model and feeling and just trust that goodwill and common sense are going to be sufficient to work out whatever problems come up. We don't need to turn to the Word of God to understand how our relationships fit together. <clears throat> Give everyone an equal voice in everything. 
regardless of maturity, gifts or callings or anointing or lack thereof or biblical instruction. Shun accountability in relationships. Make sure that any authority within your community is not properly understood, certainly not honored. In other words, don't make distinctions between the type of authority that would that a drill sergeant would exercise and the type of authority you would see in a mother with her children. Just confuse all that and tell everybody that authority is abusive. Okay, and, and, and encourage people to stick up for their individual rights. It can protect you from finding the will of God. Point number six. This is the last one I'll, I'll give here. I could go on and on, you see. Point number six, cultivate fantasies about how easy, carefree, and painless community life will always be. With your head securely in the sand, ignore the signs of the times in the world around you. Do not consider what manner of people we ought to be. Just blissfully assume that tribulation is something that only happens to other people. Broad is the path, and easy is the way that leads to life. Embrace doctrines that allow for no purpose or meaning in suffering, persecution, or death. Do whatever it takes to make sure that your people think it's strange when they encounter fiery trials. So, ignorance is key to all of this. Okay? Don't cultivate a sense of history. Don't cultivate a sense, an awareness of cultural implications or trends that are going on in society. Don't have a clear sense of vision or purpose. I could keep going, but I'm not going to. Into a lot of other things. We could talk about how we raise our kids and so on and so forth. But I'm gonna move on from that. Do you think that's enough for now? Do you feel equipped to fail? <laughs> okay. I told you that'd be the short part and the easy part. <clears throat> Our assumption in sharing with you here is that you're here, that we're all here, because we're seeking to produce fruit. We're seeking to live out the reality of the kingdom of God in the earth. If that's not your goal, then you're probably in the wrong place here. And the thing about, about fruit is, I guess I'm also making some assumption that you're here in this place at this time because you've seen or heard something about the fruit in this uh, community that has uh, at least intrigued you and caused you to, to want to inquire further about it. Um, and the thing about it is, you know, everybody wants to eat the fruit, but not everybody wants to understand and do what it takes to grow that fruit. You know, you come by someone else's garden and you see, man, look at those tomatoes. I want tomatoes like that. And they say, oh, well, then let me start talking to you about the soil and all this. No, 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 no. I just want tomatoes. There's got to be some kind of miracle grow or something. You know, what's that, what's that, just that little secret thing that you can just hand to me and I can just go spray on my garden to get the fruit like you have? 
And experienced gardeners are a little dismayed at that approach and a little dubious as to whether anybody's going to actually achieve fruit with that, that goal, with that approach, excuse me. So we have encountered people before who, who come and want to glean this or that piece of what they see in our uh, experience of community life here. Maybe it's homeschooling, or maybe it's um, a focus on agrarianism, or um, the way we worship, or a, very, a piece of our understanding of scripture or something, and say, no, 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 I just want, I want that. And I'm gonna take that, and then I'm gonna sew that patch onto what I, you know, the context and, and a kind of different understanding that I have, because some of that other stuff scares me, and, and I don't understand it. So let me just take that, I love that piece. I'm going to just take that and add that, you know, to what I'm doing, and then, then I'm, you know, will expect to get the same fruit, and it, it just doesn't work. Amen. There is a, there is a wholeness and a completeness to the Word of God, and to the truth that we're all seeking to find more of, but all of the pieces are important. If we try to paste one piece of it on like wallpaper, when, when the foundation is missing, um, we're going to be disappointed. We believe that every truth stands or falls according to its relationship to the whole. So as we proceed through the week, we're probably going to talk about a lot of doctrines. We're going to talk about truths. We're going to talk about scripture. We'll talk about concepts. But those things are not standalone propositions. We hope that they will not come to you as standalone propositions that are divorced from their context and from the way they integrate with all of the other pieces. Because it is in that integration, in that wholeness, that we find life. Is that not the model that we see in, the, in all of the created world? That life requires a symbiosis of multiple complexities of systems that have to work together. What they call that concept? Yeah, that's it. I hear it. I wrote. I knew I wrote it somewhere. Irreducible complexity. You heard that term before? You know, when you if you ask, uh, is you, for survival, is your are your lungs or your heart more important? That's a hard question to answer. We could list a lot of body systems, couldn't we? Where if you just deleted one of them, you've got death. And so having the fullness of it is key if we would have a body that's alive. The truths and the teachings that we are going to try to present, at least uh, a, a good beginning towards throughout the course of the week, are not things that we arrived at simply by uh, a lot of study and that we thought, well, that seems like it's probably right. We're going to try to share with you the, the foundations that have produced the life that we are living and experiencing by the grace of God. We followed the anointed word of God and the fruit that it bore in our journey. We've made plenty of mistakes along the way, but the Lord has been gracious to us and has brought us this far, and we want to keep trusting him. Life, we believe life is, as the scripture says, all things are sustained by the word of his power. There's a foundational sustainability. Everybody talks about sustainability. But if you don't have sustainability, 
in your relationships with one another, in your relationship with God, then all of the rest of the, um, the outgrowths of life and facets of life uh, lose, their, lose their meaning. So that's part of our goal and purpose in this uh, season together. One of the scriptures we reference in naming it Solomon's Porch, Brother Josiah mentioned that it, the New Testament tells us they would gather there. And you remember there was a time where they, um, the apostles had been taken into custody and then an angel got them up, opened the doors and, and said, go back out. And he told them, go and stand in the temple and tell all the people all of the words of this life. We hope that, that the words will not just be words, they are the words of a life. One translation says, the whole message of this life. So that's our goal here. As Brother Asi said, we're not really, we're not wanting to start doctrine wars. We're not, we're not interested in competition um, or winning the argument. We want to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. If we are passionate at times about it, please forgive us. We do feel deeply about it. But we want to approach everything we talk about looking for the relational significance of why it's important, why it matters, how it affects our lives. If it doesn't, we believe if it doesn't affect our relationship with God and our relationship with each other, it's probably not worth spending our time on. <clears throat> so in short, I'll just take a couple minutes to introduce the film that we're going to proceed towards now. Many of you may have seen it already. Um, in short, what we're saying here about truth and, and doctrine and so forth is that it's got to be living, it's got to be whole. Brother Blair gave the example many years ago of a, you know, you can have a, a living tree, and if you cut that tree into pieces, like for firewood, you can chop it into those pieces of cordwood, and you still have all of the pieces that you started with, but you've killed the tree. And so if you, you can look at that stack and say, well, look, you know, it's all there. And then you can take out those pieces one at a time and examine them, but you have, you have removed them from the way that they fit together that would actually produce fruit on that tree. And so we want to approach all these things in that kind of heart and mindset to fit them into the context of a kingdom, of a salvation that is not just individualized, privatized, but is viewed in, 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 in light of the whole, and not just the whole understanding of the head, but the whole incorporation of relationships in a corporate body of Christ. Kingdom terms are found throughout the scripture. It was really Jesus' concept, wasn't it? Jesus talked all the time about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like... All this parables just about. We're trying to communicate in some form to us the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay? So uh, what does that mean, this term kingdom? If we just ask ourselves why the word kingdom? Well, first of all, it's a corporate term. It's not an individualized term. Me and Jesus do not form a kingdom. All right? So what he was obviously trying to institute on the earth was a fitly framed body, as we've already said. So it's a, it's a corporate term. 
It also denotes government. It denotes authority. It denotes lordship. It denotes a structure and an organization, an administration, if you will, that will bring to pass purposes. It, it denotes a place that is delineated by boundaries. It denotes, we could use the word culture is probably the best word. Culture, I think by definition, means something that includes the entire way of life of a people. Total process of human activity, we could call it. It's been, your culture has been called your lived religion. T.S. Eliot called culture the incarnation of religion. And that's true no matter what culture you're in. Whether that's, it's not just the culture of particular named religion, but any form of culture is expressing what people truly believe, what they truly feel deeply about, regardless of what they say with their mouths, the way that you live, where you live, how you work, how you play, how you pray, how you entertain yourself, all how you dress, how you eat. All of these things are expressing the, totalitary, the, to, the totality of your life is expressing your faith. Whether that faith be in yourself, whether it be in God, wherever it is placed, your life is going to reflect that. That's the point I'm trying to make. <clears throat> so a culture is a nurturing habitat for a particular worldview. In the biblical terms, Brother Ossie already mentioned to us, there are conflicting cultures referred to as two cities. One is Jerusalem, the other is Babylon. They're both referred to in the Bible as mothers. What is a mother? A mother is one who nurtures. It's one who feeds. It's one who shapes. It's one who educates. It's one who takes care of and protects. Two nurturing habitats. Jerusalem above is the mother of us all. Babylon is called the mother of harlots. So these are two cities, two corporate systems, two worldviews. We've already heard that Babylon means confusion. Babylon gives us the illusion that we can have both. That we can serve two masters. That we can paste our, our religion into the context of this other culture that we're already living in. But God has always been clear that it's not so. It's black and white that we must come out of her, my people.